You're listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at some of the major stories of the week. I'm your host this week, Brianna Heaney. This week, we learned about human trafficking in the state, and we heard from the U.S. Senator Joe Manchin about his decision not to run for re-election. We also have reports on the gas outage in West Charleston and an electric upgrade to a school system. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. Thanks to a settlement reached last Wednesday, Mon Power customers will pay a smaller monthly increase than originally proposed, starting in March. Curtis Tate has more. The average Mon Power residential electricity user will pay about $5 more a month starting on March 27th if the West Virginia Public Service Commission approves the deal. That's less than half the $11 increase the company proposed. The company also wanted it to take effect on January 1st. It will take electricity users three years to pay off Mon Power's fuel costs of $255 million, but that lowers the monthly cost from paying it all off at once. As part of the settlement, the company agreed to review its coal management practices. PSC testimony showed that Monpower acquired more coal than it could safely store at its two West Virginia power plants. It had to store some off-site or burn it when the power was not needed. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. Schools in Wayne County will be receiving an electric upgrade in the coming years. Chris Schultz has more. Wayne County Schools plans to solarize all of their buildings in the county by 2025. The installations are part of a power purchasing agreement, or PPA, between the school system and West Virginia solar installer and developer Solar Holler. Dan Conant is the founder and CEO of Solar Holler. He says PPAs, approved by the legislature in 2021, take the upfront costs of such a large installation off of entities like Wayne County Schools. Solar Holler is paying for the panels, the power electronics, the racking, the wiring, and all the labor to install the equipment. And from there, Wayne County Schools is going to be buying the power for the next 25 years off of the system at a 20% discount. Conant says Solar Holler is in conversation with other school systems for similar agreements. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. You're listening to West Virginia Week. And now some of our top featured stories from the past week. First, we start with a three-part series about human trafficking. Many of us have heard the phrase human trafficking. News director Eric Douglas wanted to know what human trafficking looks like in the Mountain State and brings us the first in a three-part series on the issue. A warning, there is no explicit language in this reporting, but some of the topics in these stories may be difficult for some to hear. Everyone is against human trafficking. The problem is, what most of us imagine as human trafficking isn't really what happens, at least in a place like West Virginia. Human trafficking is the exploitation of an individual for the purpose of commercial sex or compelled labor. Uh, You mentioned uh, human smuggling and a coyote bringing someone across the border. So just to kind of clarify that, uh, human smuggling is a crime against a border where transportation is required, but human trafficking is a crime against a person and uh, transportation is not required. That was Polly Ant. She's the Programs and Law Enforcement Training Coordinator from the West Virginia Fusion Center. The agency brings together intelligence from multiple law enforcement agencies. Her job is to identify situations where human trafficking is suspected 
and to send that information along to local police. Like she said, human trafficking doesn't require travel. Victims don't have to be taken anywhere. They don't have to cross state lines or even leave their hometowns. There does have to be fraud, force, or coercion to make the situation into human trafficking. Jack Lucard is the director of the Fusion Center. How big of a problem is it in West Virginia? Well, we don't know. It's the one of the most under-investigated, under-prosecuted crimes that we have. Often these crimes are perpetrated by family members or other trusted individuals who sell people who are in difficult situations for sex. For Yount, the problem is many victims may not understand they are being used. They may not realize that they're a victim as well. They may not realize that the, the situation that they're in, um, again, through the f- use of force, fraud, or coercion, uh, that it is a situation of human trafficking. And again, goes back to those resources. They may not know um, who to seek out for help. Lucart says he has 30 years in law enforcement, but he never really heard about human trafficking until the last few years wasn't even a topic of conversation among law enforcement. Um, uh, I was never given any classes on human trafficking. I was never told how to recognize human trafficking. No prosecutor or uh, anyone ever said we might have a human trafficking charge here. Or I, as as an officer, never thought about that side of things. One goal through the Fusion Center is to take training and education to state agencies and to make sure law enforcement doesn't miss the opportunity to file those charges. I just think that as we educate, as we publicize, the, the statewide initiative, uh, the governor's offices directed all state offices to uh, put the brochures, the flyers out. The information is going to be posted in all rest areas, all uh, welcome centers. Secretary of State Mac Warner is also using his position as the licensing agency for all businesses in the state to create West Virginia businesses against trafficking. Businesses are asked to post information to be aware of customers who may be in trouble. So the Secretary of State's office is, is actually educating our businesses, uh, business owners, business leaders on human trafficking. And these, these flyers and these brochures are going to be put in West Virginia businesses. For William Thompson, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of West Virginia, the problem is basic and troubling. A lot of what we see is as a direct result of what I call, you know, you can call it the opioid epidemic, the drug epidemic, whatever it might be. And we see a lot of what family trafficking, where family members are essentially selling young children into sexual acts uh, in order to get some money, which is then usually spent on drugs. That is the most common form of human trafficking. But Thompson explained that he does see labor trafficking, too. Uh, whether it be panhandling, you know, we've seen the, you go through a, a Walmart or somewhere close and you see people panhandling, usually that's a form of human trafficking. Uh, they'll transport them six, eight, ten hours away, uh, take their, any means of transportation, ID, communications, and say, you need to go out and do this for a number of hours or you don't get a ride home. Ultimately, whether for sex or for labor, People are preyed upon by others while they are at their most vulnerable. Often, their support system is gone, or they are isolated and there is no one to turn to. And then, the trafficker tells them to do something, or they will lose what little they have left. It is also, commonly, a family member or relative that is doing the trafficking. 
They've taken three years of my life telling a story that wasn't even true. There was missing parts of it, and I just want to be able to fill the missing pieces with what actually happened. That was Jane Doe. She is a victim of human trafficking. You will hear more of her story later this week. Her trafficker has been sentenced to prison. The man she was sold to for sex will be sentenced soon. And at that point, she says, she looks forward to telling everyone her story. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Eric Douglas in Charleston. Experts say that a lot of human trafficking is going under the radar because most of us don't know what to look for. In the last story, news director Eric Douglas looked into human trafficking in the Mountain State. In this installment, he speaks with law enforcement experts about how to spot human trafficking and the ways it is being investigated. It is probable that many of us have encountered a person who is being trafficked and we just didn't realize it. That's not what we're seeing. We're not seeing young girls being kidnapped off the streets of West Virginia and being shipped overseas. Uh, unfortunately, the crime's happening right here in our backyard. That was William Thompson. He's the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of West Virginia. He says teachers, faith, and other group leaders can be on the lookout for young people caught up in human trafficking. One is watch for absences like on Fridays and Mondays for like long weekends. Uh, also watch for all of a sudden a person comes in with a new expensive phone or toy or, or something that doesn't quite fit. Um, to watch uh, tattoos. Uh, unfortunately, mm. some uh, human traffickers want to use tattoos as a way of keeping track, for lack of a better term. Look for them to have a, a person to have a significantly older boyfriend or female companion, someone. It just doesn't make sense. Thompson said the weekend absences may mean the young people may be taken elsewhere for sex work. We're, because of our location, if you think about it, you know, six to eight hours in a car, you can be within probably 50 percent of the United States population. We're not that far from a lot of major metropolitan areas. Right. So a lot of them are being used on the weekends where they're being trafficked uh, to and from, you know, Columbus, Detroit, New York, some of the same places where we get illegal other bad things coming <laughs> to us. William Elenfeld is Thompson's counterpart. He is the U.S. attorney for the northern district of the state. He explained that whether it is labor trafficking or sex trafficking, Victims are isolated from anyone who can help. I mean, basically they're cut off from communication with anyone that might be able to, to help them. Um, so they're not necessarily being moved from place to place when it comes to labor trafficking, although that's possible. Um, and then, you know, with sex trafficking, um, it's uh, situations where, and as you said, the police officers might think it was just a prostitution ring, but in many instances the... Um, the, the females who are involved um, are victims, and they are being forced to engage in this, this type of activity uh, by the, the person who uh, is, is in control of the situation. According to Elenfeld, often these are vulnerable people. They might be a runaway. They may have suffered some sort of trauma in their life, or they might have a substance abuse problem, and it is often a member of the family committing the crime. It's not something that is always obvious. Uh, I've heard it referred to as an invisible crime because it's very difficult to, to see. Uh, and, but that's where trainings come in. Um, I, I think all new officers should be trained in how to identify human trafficking. There are various in-person seminars and resources of information on places like the Handle with Care WV website 
that provide information on what to look for. One way law enforcement becomes aware of the problem is when traffickers begin exchanging images or electronic messages. The reason that we came on to the case that I mentioned a few minutes ago uh, was because of images that were being exchanged between the, uh, the mother of our victim and the, uh, another person involved in the conspiracy. Uh, that, that, that's, you know, they, they were sending explicit images over the Internet, uh, and, and they were identified through um, various platforms as being pornographic, and, and that's how we were able to begin to look into this person who was involved in uh, illicit sexual activity with minors. Because of the nature of these crimes, the West Virginia Fusion Center, a data clearinghouse for law enforcement, has set up a human trafficking program. Samantha Dowles is the human trafficking intelligence analyst for the Fusion Center. So I use different softwares and resources available to me at the Fusion Center to look through different platforms, look through different areas that traffickers may be utilizing to exploit their victims. And through that, I will look for red flags and different things that may lead me to believe that they are a potential victim or a potential trafficker. Dials has a master's degree in criminal justice. She says she compiles the information and presents what she finds to Homeland Security. So when I do find a potential victim or a potential trafficker, we are very closely partnered with Homeland Security Investigations in West Virginia. So... I will put together a lead is what we call it, and it's a report, and I will take that information that I can gather and send that to Homeland Security Investigations here in Charleston, and we kind of put our heads together, and they will open a case on whatever information I found if they find that viable. There are state and federal statutes against human trafficking, but often it falls to the U.S. attorneys to prosecute it. For Thompson, that's a good thing. We have the resources more so at the federal level. Uh, you know, I come from the state level. I was a former state court judge for 15 years. I've saw a lot of it. Uh, and some of it is prosecuted at the state level. We have the resources, um, and our sentences are harsher on the federal level. So if, uh, and this is one where I'm very glad they're harsher on the federal level, that it's good for us to get involved if we can. Like most crimes, prosecution of human trafficking can take a long time. It may be hard to find evidence, and witnesses and victims may be reluctant to come forward to testify. It takes a team effort of investigators, prosecutors, and victim support staff to bring it all together. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Eric Douglas in Charleston. Human trafficking has been called an invisible crime. It's often difficult to identify and harder to prosecute. In the first two installments of this series, news director Eric Douglas looked into human trafficking in the Mountain State and learned how prosecutors look for evidence of a crime. For the final story, we'll hear from Jane Doe. She is a human trafficking survivor. We have agreed to change her name to protect her identity. When federal prosecutors released arrest information on the people involved in trafficking Jane Doe, it made national headlines because one of the perpetrators was the police chief in the small town where they lived. They've taken three years of my life telling a story that wasn't even true. There was missing parts of it, and I just want to be able to fill the missing pieces with what actually happened. In Doe's case, her stepmother sold her to a man for sex. That man should have been someone she reported the crime to, not the other way around. 
Both people have been convicted for their crimes. The stepmother has been sentenced, but the man has not received his punishment yet. Doe's birth father struggled with addiction and was out of the picture. Then Doe lost her mother to cancer, and her stepfather eventually remarried. Her stepmother used that as leverage. And I was told that if I did not do it, that she had my stepdad wrapped around her finger and my mom was gone. I would never have anybody to love or care about me ever again. And so if I didn't do it, I'd be out on the streets. Doe's stepfather wasn't arrested in connection with this human trafficking case, but Doe says she felt like she was on her own. No one would believe me. I was just a girl who lost her mom. I was always accused of making up stories that it was always my fault, that I asked for it, that I wanted it, and I never did. It made me hate myself that people looked at me that way. At one point, Doe even attempted suicide. But despite everything she went through, she has come through the situation stronger. It made me who I am today, and without that, I don't know if I could face what life throws at me. So I just, I cope with it day by day. I don't want to think about it, but the only way to move on from it is to think about it and put the pieces back together of what was broken. As it turned out, once she came forward, Doe developed a new support system. One of those people was Tracy Chapman. In the federal system, federal crime victims have certain rights and services that they're entitled to and that they deserve under federal statute. And my role is to work with survivors of crime um, who are going through the criminal justice process to educate them about the process and what to expect, to be their advocate um, throughout that process, making sure that I'm coordinating with the assistant U.S. attorneys, with case agents, with probation and the courts, making sure that the victim's rights are afforded, making sure that the victim is aware of what those rights are. One way victims' advocates help is by making sure victims are prepared to exercise the very important right of letting their voice be heard at sentencing. The following is Jane Doe reading the victim statement she wrote for her stepmother. She originally read it in court, but this was recorded in the public broadcasting studios. This one was towards my stepmom. It says, You were supposed to be a mother figure in my life when my mom passed away. You have four beautiful babies of your own, yet you still hurt me, a kid. I know that you would never want this to happen to one of your kids, so what made you think it was okay to do it to somebody else's? I was supposed to look up to you in life as a parent, a role model, a mother figure. I was supposed to trust you and put my faith in you that you would never do something so wrong that it caused me so much pain. My life fell apart when everything happened, and you didn't seem to notice nor care how it affected me. You knew what you were doing is wrong, but you did it anyways. I don't sleep at night. I don't trust anyone. I don't even know who to look up to for guidance anymore because I no longer have any parents. When my mom passed, all I wanted was a mother figure. Someone to talk to about boys and female things that girls don't want to talk to their dads about. Instead, I couldn't trust you or come to you with anything, because in your eyes, I was nothing more than a pawn, a piece of material that could be sold for money. I was 17, a kid, a human being with feelings, and none of that mattered to you. I really wanted a family, somewhere that I felt like I belonged, and living there, I never felt more like an outcast, a burden, a waste of space. I felt like no matter what I did, I would never be more than just a materialistic pawn for you to use and abuse how you pleased with no consequences or rules set in place for your behavior. You ruined who I was, and you took everything from me, everything except my voice to speak up. Had I not spoke up, who knows how many more people would have gotten hurt because of you. But because of me, 
You can't hurt anyone or use anyone as a pawn for money ever again. You broke me, but I'm rebuilding what you broke, and I will become the best version of myself despite what you put me through. I'm no longer a victim. I'm a survivor. And after reading that, I told her I forgave her. Doe said she didn't fully understand or believe everything that happened to her until she testified in court. And that is the day that I completely broke down and realized that this is real. It happened to me, and I cannot change the fact that it happened to me, but I can change how I move forward in life and what I make of myself. What would you suggest if someone's going through this? How would they reach out to get help? The pain that it causes you, I know that you wouldn't want to see anyone else go through it. And I've told people that I would go through this a thousand and one time more just to make sure another kid never went through it because I survived. And I don't want anyone else to lose their life because of it. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, this is Eric Douglas in Charleston. This is the final story in our three-part series on human trafficking in West Virginia. Visit our website to find links to more information. Mountaineer Gas says it has restored 100% of water-filled gas lines on the west side of Charleston, but many residents are still without heat, and the outages are taking a toll on the community. I went to the west side and talked to some of the residents affected by the outage. Here's that story. Margaret Marr sits in her home with an overcoat on and space heaters placed around the room on Charleston's west side. Her fluffy Persian cats are curled up in tight balls. The temperature outside is 28 degrees. She had a pump in her furnace replaced an hour before, but the floors are still ice cold from the 18 days she spent without heat. She says she's worried it'll break again. It had different parts replaced by contract crews, but she says it hasn't stayed on for more than 15 minutes before it goes out again. You hear about on the news, oh, the, you know, 1,100 people are all set now, their heat's on. No, we, no, our heat is not on, you know. It makes me angry when I see that on the news. We're still suffering over here. The gas outage that lasted around two weeks and affected 1,500 Mountaineer Gas Company customers was caused by a West Virginia American water line break. The water infiltrated the gas lines. Mountaineer Gas said that the 46 miles of gas lines affected have been dried and fully restored. However, many home appliances, like water heaters, furnaces, and stoves, were damaged or destroyed when water entered the gas lines. And because of it, many households, like Mars, are still without hot water or heat. Jay Marino owns one of the contracted companies responsible with getting water-damaged appliances fixed or replaced. His office's garage is filled with boxes of new water heaters and furnaces. Outside, he has dozens of water-destroyed appliances that his crew took out of homes. Yeah, we're doing daily what we would typically do in a week. Wow. That's, that's the extreme. That's the extreme. And you never see this. You would never see this volume. Since the early days of the outage, his company has been carrying triple the caseload they normally do. And he says his teams have been working nonstop. They're working 14, 15 hours a day. They haven't stopped in two weeks. They work through Thanksgiving. We gave them a couple hours off for dinner, and then they're, you know, they're back at it. The west side, where the gas outage occurred, 
is a lower income neighborhood of Charleston with a high percentage of residents who are people of color. Marr believes that other more affluent areas would have had a different response, but because of preconceived notions about her neighborhood, she thinks the crisis has not been treated with urgency, leaving her and other residents in the cold. Because it's the west side, we're still sitting here. You know what I'm saying? On November 21st, the Charleston City Council wrote a letter to the Public Service Commission asking them to delay or reject a proposed rate increase for both Mountaineer Gas Company's 4% increase and West Virginia American Water's 22% increase. It reads, While this small action would not make the Westside residents whole, it would at least allow them to avoid another drastic rate increase, as they are still recovering from a severe service interruption that was costly to them, the council said in the letter. City Councilman Larry Moore signed the letter. His entire district was without gas. On Saturday, November 25th, a house burned down after multiple portable heaters were attached to an outlet by an extension cord, which became overloaded and caused a fire. Two people were hospitalized and four were left homeless. Moore says the cost to people's health and property as well as the likely increase in people's utility bills due to the use of portable heaters are all reasons why the PSC should consider waiting to approve an increase that would cost his already struggling community more money. Hopefully it sheds light and then they can see that the infrastructure needs work, worked on bad before, you know, our rates go up, can we get the infrastructure fixed? Mountaineer Gas plans to credit Westside residents' accounts with $75 off their next bill. The Public Service Commission opened an investigation on November 16th to look into the widespread gas outage and the utility's response to the outage. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. U.S. Senator Joe Manchin announced his retirement from the Senate last month. Curtis Tate spoke with Manchin earlier this week about that decision, what he expects to do next, and what he accomplished during his time in office. You said when you announced your retirement from the Senate that you'd accomplish what you'd set out to do for West Virginia. Could you name maybe three of those things? Oh, I could. I mean, there's so many things we've, we've done there, but let me just give you some things that we passed in what West Virginia. First of all, we've got the Mountain Valley Pipeline. We've got, next of all, we had the Arch Hub, okay, Hydrogen Hub which are major turning points for us. The hydrogen, the, the, the MVP is going to create a lot of opportunity. We're producing an awful lot of gas. There's going to be an awful lot of, of uh, opportunities in industry coming. We have, uh, uh, with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that we passed to help West Virginia, we got Form Energy up in, uh, in Weirton area that's going to be producing tremendous amounts of uh, battery, uh, battery storage. We have Nucor Steel coming along the Ohio River, Mason County. Uh, just the opportunities continue to keep coming. We've got another hydrogen plant going on in Mingo County, down in southern West Virginia. It's Adams Fork, using methane coming off the coal seams and turning it into hydrogen. So we have put ourselves in a position to transition as the, as the country and the world is changing. And we've got to be carbon conscious. But the bottom line is we're producing more fossil today, cleaner and better than anywhere in the world. So we reduced our emissions for the last two decades. And in doing that, one of the things that I'm most proud of, we were able, I was able to fight like the Dickens, and we were able to get 
the miners of West Virginia and all across the country, coal miners, their lifetime pensions and their lifetime health care benefits that they were promised and were going to be robbed from. We got that into law now, and it'll never happen. People who retire from Congress, they go on to become lobbyists. They might be university presidents or sure. serving cabinet posts or ambassadorships, corporate boards, or any, right. of those, any of those things on the table for you next. I'm, I'm, I haven't looked at anything, and I haven't thought about any of that because I've still got a heck of a job to do for the next 13 months. And I've been working my tail off on that, and I want, there's a lot of things I want to accomplish. And I have a great staff, and they're fighting like the Dickens, too. No one's giving up. We're basically going to give it every we, everything we have for the last minute to the last day, and that will be early January of 2025. So, But <clears throat> I'm more concerned about my country than ever before, and you hear me talk about it all the time. I, and people say, oh, you're going to run for president and this and that. And I said, let me just tell you something. I don't have a burning desire to run for president, but I do have an overwhelming burning desire to save our country. And if I can get people understanding that the political process that we live in today in America has been weaponized, that means if you're on one side, the other side has to be your enemy. And you have to villainize the other side to create the fervor you need in order to beat them or defeat them. We're not the enemy. A Democrat and Republican, we are not enemies and should not be. We might be competitors with different ideas of how to fix the same problem, but we're all on the same side. That's America's side. They're losing that because Washington is making you pick a side. What side are you on, Curtis? And you figure, well, you've got to pick well. I'm not crazy about either one, but I think I would relate more to this than that. And then you push clear to the left or the right. That middle has been evaporating and gone. There's no place. I think there's more people today that are unsatisfied with the opportunities and assistance that what's going to be provided for them for the next election. And what we're going to do is see if there's enough good people out there that want to re-engage. That's it. No other Democrat currently holds statewide office in West Virginia. Do you have yeah. somebody in mind uh, to, to run um, as your successor, and do you plan to endorse anyone? Well, I haven't gotten into that because I just made the decision late. You know, you have the Democrats have one outstanding, I mean, truly an outstanding leader in Steve Williams running for governor. Uh, I've known Steve for many, many years. I was in the legislature with him, and I've watched him perform in the most difficult, challenging times in, in Huntington and how he's been able to turn that around, the whole economy of that and the whole vibrancy of that area. So he's going to be a tremendous, worthy opponent, a candidate. I think that most West Virginians could rally around someone with that stature and that experience level. I really believe that. As far as on my side, the Senate side, haven't gotten there yet. We'll look and see. If there's an independent, if there's basically a Democrat, or who we think would be best for the state. I would like people to look not at the identity of what party they belong to, but basically the content and the content of what the person is and who, what they're about and what type of experience level they've had. What's their temperament? You know, if you're looking at basically trying to find an enemy rather than trying to find a solution, <clears throat> you're not going to be very helpful for the people in West Virginia. How much was your family involved in your decision to not seek re-election, and, and especially your wife, Gail? Oh, well, Gail, Gail's, Gail's my, she's my, my bellwether. She's my, 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 uh, you know, my confidant. And we've talked about all of this. I've been uh, in over four. I started in 1982, so what, that's 42 years. So I've been, uh, my public service, I, I, I think it was a calling when I got involved. And I've, uh, my family has sacrificed an awful lot. But the people have been so so absolutely wonderful, supportive, and generous and kind and working with me. I could never do anything uh, by myself, but I knew if West Virginians, if we were working towards an, a goal, we could achieve it. And we did a lot. We've done an awful lot uh, together, <clears throat> whether it's the Secretary of State 
And we had the Shares Program, Saving History and Reaching Every Student. We got, we got young people involved and in how important it was. Uh, 17-year-old, if they turn 18 before the election day, they're able to vote in a primary while they're 17. People never knew these things. So we got them involved. We changed the whole process of how we did corporations and changed all the, the streamlining that, making it easier for businesses to do business in West Virginia. And then as governor, I think we moved to a whole other level. We had mind safety coming in. We had basically the value of a human being is irreplaceable, and you can't put a price on it. So we did everything to keep them safe. We had horrible mind tragedies. We stuck together, and we created opportunities. We came through the the, uh, the downturn in 2008 and 2009, and the federal government wasn't sending out billions and billions of dollars of, of, of assets and, and help and money to states back then like they are now. Over $10 billion has come to the state of West Virginia during COVID, and uh, now I hope that they have themselves in position to be able to live within their means. So my family had tremendous amount. I wanted to spend a little more time with them. I have two younger grandchildren, two identical seven-year-old boys out in Houston, and I have a little da- a granddaughter out in Houston's 10. Those are my youngest. The rest of my uh, 10 grandchildren, the other seven, are pretty much grown, and I've missed an awful lot, and I don't want to miss a whole lot more. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm your host, Brianna Heaney.